I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Max Elder, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's start right in the beginning. Uh, Where did you first develop your interest in um, food or food systems issues? Where was that first seed planted? Well, what I love about food is that it's ever-present in our lives. Uh, I think I didn't realize or have the language to understand the importance, but I have very, very meaningful memories growing up as a kid, uh, cooking with my mother at home and sharing meals with family and friends. And at the time, I didn't realize what kind of impact that had on me, but it was incredibly meaningful. Uh, But it wasn't until I was 18 and went to college and started studying philosophy and ethics that I was exposed to ideas that were more critical about food systems and gave me a lens to think differently about what food is, what it means, the impact that it has on our bodies, on the planet, and more. And so it wasn't until about 18 when I started to study food systems that I was given a whole new lens to see the world. And what was the first issue? Was it uh, the use of animals in the food system? Was it just the inequities in our food system? What drew you into uh, the the issues that... Because, you know, f- we use the word term food system fairly broadly as if it is one contained thing that can be neatly defined. Uh, it is... We're trying to make, we're developing a mental model really to describe something that is uh, not only not static, it's ever changing. It is, uh, it touches nearly every facet of uh, our lives as human beings on the planet, as well as touches the lives of other beings. It touches natural resources. It So, what what was that first spark? Like, was it learning about animal ethics? Was it learning about health and nutrition that? that made you dig further. I think that's very crucial because it, and the reason for that question is really so that people understand maybe what got you originally into this and maybe that's changed over the years, but but it would be good to know that context. Yeah, I love the question. And, and honestly, I, I agree. Food system means nothing. Uh, we have a food system. It's an energy system. It's a cultural system. It's a historical system. It's a familial system. It's, it's a political system. It's an economic system. Uh, and... Actually, my favorite way of thinking about the food system is through non-food lenses. Uh, That, to me, is always the most interesting. These are political economies. Um, These are systems of justice and inequity. So I very much appreciate that we need better language. Uh, And the, the first sort of system that I was exposed to that got me kind of opened the door for my exploration both academically, uh, professionally, and, and personally, was uh, through animal ethics. So I was taking a, to be honest, actually, I was taking an intro to logic class in college. <laughs> I, I uh, have a degree in philosophy. And uh, when I was 18, my homework assignment was 
to go home, read a bunch of seemingly controversial uh, arguments for topics ranging from um, abortion to, uh, well, one of them was eating animals. And the homework was to break down rhetoric into its logical format and then test whether we thought that those arguments were valid and if they were valid, whether they were sound. And I went to class the next day and went, did my homework and uh, sat uh, around a bunch of peers who I respected and um, just heard a bunch of cognitive dissidents for an hour and um, sat there and was convinced that this very simplistic argument for why uh, the unnecessary suffering of animals in modern food supply chains uh, was unjustifiable uh, morally. I, I was convinced by the argument, uh, was never asked before to really think deeply about its validity and soundness, and then was dumbfounded by uh, sitting in a room for an hour and hearing people talk circles around justifying their diets. Uh, and I ate animals then and uh, so clearly saw um, for the first time that maybe I shouldn't be. And that was very much, though, the door uh, into the room. I've spent uh, now a decade in this space and in doing work across um, the quote-unquote food system. And the animal ethic concern was the first thread I started to pull. But once you're in and you start pulling any other thread, it turns out that in my mind, there's no more important space to be working in right now than changing the way that we farm animals globally. Uh, because you can pull an environmental thread, a racial justice thread, a health thread, um, a rural economies thread in the United States. You can, you can pull almost any thread and these systems are at the epicenter of a plethora of thorny problems that urgently need to be solved. Yeah, I think your background is so uniquely um, suited to the times we're in and to the to the issues we talk about on this uh, podcast for sure. So you spent, as you, you sort of alluded to this, we spent about a decade uh, focusing on food systems issues. So obviously that that seed was a powerful one and pretty much changed the course of your professional career. Um, tell us more about the work you did in that, in those 10 years and... Uh, probably hard to summarize all of that, but in terms of what what areas did you focus on? What are the kinds of work do you did you do? What what issues did you encounter? And where where did your knowledge sort of net out after doing uh, after exploring the uh, dark corners of uh, <laughs> uh, in our complicated global food web? Um, yeah, it would be it would be great to get get some insights on some of that background because very few. Food entrepreneurs I have on have done so much work in food systems prior to embarking on their entrepreneurial journey. So I want to make sure we don't skip over that today. Well, Neil, it's, it's certainly it, – there are many, many dark, dark corners of this food system. Uh, <laughs> and quite frankly, I think probably the past nine or ten years has been me fumbling around in the dark, trying to feel around and understand those corners. Uh, I – Started back when I was 21, I became a fellow at a think tank in Oxford where I thought that actually academic work was where I could have the highest uh, sort of impact um, and spent a lot of time 
primarily in the beginning doing work on uh, aquaculture uh, and uh, fisheries. I'm large. I'm very, very concerned about uh, fish and aquaculture is the fastest growing food production system in the world. Uh, over 90% of global fisheries are either fully fished at their maximum capacity or overfished. About a third of those um, actually are overfished. And uh, I spent a long time in the beginning thinking that uh, if I only just worked really hard on scaling and amplifying these ideas about the problem landscape and possible opportunities or solutions that I could have a big impact. Uh, but it turns out that ideas take a really long time to get footholds in markets and consumer behavior and to have impact at scale. And it turns out that the problems that I care so deeply about, I learned, are not information problems anymore. Uh, at one point, they were. But we know that, you know, depending on who you ask, agriculture and related land use accounts for about a quarter of all global greenhouse gas emissions. We know that one in five deaths globally is diet-related. I live in San Francisco. It's 2022. Outside of my window right now, cars are driving themselves. And we as humanity can't feed ourselves. It's absolutely, utterly absurd. And it's not an information problem. So instead, I realized this is a systems problem. This is a market problem. This is a problem of consumer adoption and behavior. And instead of being academic and working on these ideas, uh, we needed faster impact. And so instead needed to spend more time uh, figuring out how to drive sustainable solutions in, in the market. Now, that took me a long, a long, long time to figure out. Uh, I spent five years in New York City doing philanthropy. I thought, uh, God, deploying capital at a systems level to solve thorny problems was uh, the next best thing after academia, sort of pseudo-academic work. Um, but philanthropy left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, um, not as directly linked to impact as I would have hoped. And um, spent about a year trying to start a cultured seafood company because of my concern for uh, the state of world fisheries and the fact that aquaculture was being touted as a sustainable solution to protein demand, which I absolutely think it is not. And um, did that in 2015 for about a year and realized a couple of things. One was that I was not the right person to start a cultured meat company. Uh, cultured meat is, is still think to this day, a highly speculative moonshot with very uncertain techno-economic models, very long pathways to commercialization, uh, underdeveloped regulatory frameworks, and at the end of the day, uh, very uncertain consumer adoption. So instead, realized that uh, getting some experience in the food industry would help me better understand where I could have impact and moved out to California, got a job at a think tank uh, spinoff of the Rand Corporation in the late 60s called the Institute for the Future. Spent about four and a half years consulting around the world for different actors across this value chain and started a plant-based meat company. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on, on, on some of the food systems work you did before we, before we get to your uh, current endeavors, um, partly because I find it, and I'm sure those listening will find it interesting to figure out their own way to analyze this, this question or problem, which is once you recognize the challenges, the limitations, the damage being caused by our current food systems, whether it's in the U.S. or across the world, and uh, you recognize that maybe you want to use the time that you have and the skill sets that you have as an individual to work on some impactful way to 
address this problem, which appears to be the most pressing challenge of our time because it's so, as you you articulated earlier, is interconnected literally with with everything. And you can't you pull one thread, next thing you know, you're you're talking about equity and and racial justice and um, uh, land use and ownership and 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 you you can't really draw clear boundaries between these issues. So it's a fascinating area to work in, you know, just in terms of um, passion and interest. Um, how did you arrive at the conclusion that some things were not meant for you? Was it a calculation of impact? Was it a calculation of it, you weren't the right fit for that? Or maybe the time horizons were off? You know, maybe maybe cultured meat is the answer, but maybe it depends on how much time you think we have to solve certain problems. So I'd love your analysis of like measurable impact, uh, your skill sets and where it's best applied in your interests, and then what time horizons factored into this analysis. What a amazing and challenging question. <laughs> I think I think a couple of things. There's so there's the first is that there's something just interesting about our own individual capacities for how we want to spend all of our time, and uh, I spent a while realizing that I personally just could not spend most of my life clocking in at a job that I didn't find intellectually fascinating and one where I could see like demonstrable impact on the world. And those are high bars. I, I appreciate that. That's a high bar for, uh, for a career or for a paycheck. Um, and I also appreciate that I'm very, very lucky and privileged uh, to be able to even say something like that. Uh, and so I account most of my career, what I've done in the past, what I'm doing right now, and whatever I will do in the future to a lot of privilege, um, a lot of luck, the fact that I was born in the right zip code. Um, and you know, I don't think it's, um, I won't tell you that I just sat here and worked hard and tried to uh, have impact. It's just, it's an immense amount of luck and privilege. So that's not lost on me. But if you're given a lot of luck and privilege and you're born to the right zip code and you have a great education, it's you're more and more responsible for, um, for not having that nine to five job, uh, but instead uh, creating a legacy and a better future. And so part of the challenge was I spent a long time trying to figure out what I would be really happy waking up. I woke up at 6.30 this morning and immediately got on a call. I uh, like was out until 10 o'clock last night with a partner, with an investor. Um, this is an all-consuming, uh, it's not even a job for me. And so that made it, that threshold for me was pretty high for how to have impact and how to um, be responsible with the privilege that I have. Figuring out then what to do with that luck and privilege and uh, education and experience is the second thing. Um, and the answer was is that, A, I don't know the answer. And if anyone does, especially if they're in San Francisco and raising money, don't trust them. Uh, there is no answer. I Actually, my the big insight from doing a lot of work across the food system globally is that uh, we should all be very skeptical of silver bullets that diversity is a wonderful thing um, and that there isn't an answer. There are lots of possible answers and 
the true future is a mix of a lot of different things. And, um, and in fact, diversity of thought, of business models, of value propositions, of proteins, of, uh, of everything is probably just a very good design principle to embed into any system that has resilience for the long term. Um, ironically, in fact, diversity is what we've been stripping from these systems, uh, which is the biggest problem uh, in the name of commodity markets, in the name of shareholder returns, in the name of honestly short-termism. So, um, so I knew that there isn't there wasn't a answer. Uh, there wasn't the answer, but there was an answer for me, and that answer for me needed to be something that I felt really good about, and it took me this long to figure out that uh, for me, I'm convinced that clean label, delicious, nutritious plant-based meat that is cost competitive with commodity prices of animals uh, is the most scalable solution to the problems I care deeply about. Uh, And I'm deeply convinced that whether we do it or not is a whole different question, Uh, but I'm deeply convinced that in the next decade, the protein landscape is going to look very different than it does today. And over the next decade, we will see more nutritious plant-based meats have an impact at scale. Okay. You've said uh, some really interesting things there. I'm, I'm going to obviously spend a good amount of time talking about your new company now. Before we dive in deep, um, into the nowadays pool, uh, you have to entertain a few more questions on on bigger issues. And I think as a, I believe you're a philosophy major, so so maybe some of this will be interesting for you. Um, anyone who's working on sustainable food in any capacity, whether it's at a local level, whether it is through developing cultured meat or a plant-based food company or someone who's doing academic work in the space or policy work in the space, we all hold some sort of a vision for, you know, a better version of this system that we have. I've been lately asking myself this question, and maybe it's a bit of an obvious question, and and maybe it's rhetorical also, which is, is a perfect system even possible? Right? And, and I think the, the short answer is no. I, I think sometimes we hold a vision for a perfect system, which I think is is a good thing to have. Um so you know what your true north is and and hope that we incrementally go to this. So and I would love your, your insight into whether what it is that we're trying to create and how much mm-hmm. of it is even possible within the boundaries of space and time and land and <laughs> everything that okay. we have on this planet. Neil, we're already talking about the boundaries of space and time. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm very excited. So I wholeheartedly agree that, uh, first of all, perfection is overrated. If there's anything I know about being human uh, or, or systems, uh, it's that uh, imperfection is great uh, and is probably the only thing we can strive for. The other thing is that perfect means nothing. It's perfect for whom? Uh, we fight all the time about whether the food system is broken or not. It's such a like annoying <laughs> statement. And what the reason we're all fighting is because we're talking past each other. The food system works for some people and it doesn't work for others. I think it doesn't work for a lot of people, but um, it depends on who we're talking about. Uh, and perfection in the abstract 
really means nothing. In my mind, what we're really talking about here is there are values that we need to optimize for. We don't all always make those value systems very clear or explicit. And there are trade-offs in them. And so this is true of even sustainability. Um, I think that the sustainability discourse in food is very flat and parochial, and it misses a lot of things. Um, one of which is a time horizon, <laughs> uh, which I am obsessed with because uh, we talk about these metrics and these goals as if time doesn't matter. And the one thing that beco- is becoming increasingly evident Uh, especially if you've read the most recent IPCC report, is that time absolutely matters right now. In fact, time is only mattering more and more as time goes on. And so, uh, you know, some people say, oh, regenerative grazing is a sustainable solution to some of our problems in the food system. And to even evaluate a statement like that, you have to ask a lot more questions, one of which is, for how long? Uh, Do regenerative systems perhaps revitalize some really degraded land on a short time horizon? Maybe. Uh, Is that a long-term solution? At what point do we start to have diminishing returns on those environmental benefits? And what does that system look like at scale? So we talked about uh, space and time horizons. The scale at which these potential sustainable solutions can operate and the time horizon, the the space and time of these things really matters. And uh, unfortunately, I think too few are truly focused on thinking through what value system we're optimizing for across what geographies and uh, what production capacities, what volumes, and uh, for how long. And what we really need to do is find solutions that are resilient over a long period of time, that optimize for short-term needs and long-term sustainability, um, and uh, solutions that um, can feed, and I hate to like repeat this, but can feed a growing population because that's the other big challenge. Just we have a carrying capacity. We can talk a lot about limits to growth here, but uh, we're supposed to try to feed 10 million people by 2050. And uh, those people have carbon intensive plates, uh, increasingly so. And there are just certain challenges to these systems and the energy uh, that flows through them. So, so yeah, space and time matter. You're speaking my language, uh, Max. The, the the point you raised about values and trade-offs is, is literally where I was going to go next. So maybe I, I just um, I led you right in. But those <laughs> are the, the two things that we uh, we don't we don't talk about enough, which is why I even started our conversation with what what was the first uh, thing that drew you into food systems issues. And I'm sure that has evolved over the years. You've worked, you've appreciated maybe the complexity that goes beyond maybe just animal ethics. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to let go of the value of animal ethics as perhaps your driving value. Uh, and maybe there's some ways to develop synergies between that value and other values. Um, and I, I want to bring up a point you raised earlier, which just to underscore it, in case it's lost on someone, um, is that it, it it depends on who you ask, right? For from an economic perspective, some would argue the current food system works perfectly fine, um, you know. And of course, if you somehow discount the limitations of natural resources and our planetary boundaries, um, 
it, it, maybe maybe the market will figure itself out and everything will balance out and correct itself. That's an economic view. The environmental view will always, has always been saying this since this has been happening since the 60s, that we are using natural resources, there's a limited amount of land, there's going to be climate impacts, and now we're starting to feel it because we did nothing when we could. Um, and so from there, from an environmental lens, it's never a perfect system. Any system that re- relies on non-renewable resources uh, to, to produce any sort of commodity is going to eventually um, have to make decisions that are based on trade-offs, right? Because inherently, it's, it's sort of unsustainable, and you're going to be in a constant state of trying to develop balance there. And then from a social standpoint, you look at the food system, and it's and if you look at it from that lens, it's just all about lack of access and distribution, and um, and these three, then the, those are just three. I'm sure there's more. We don't always just acknowledge them, and I think it's important to just lay it all out and say, "I come in here with my. These are the things I value. I, I and I love the work of. And I probably mentioned this in a previous episode. My thinking on this has been really shaped, and I have to credit Donella Meadows and her view on systems thinking. I mean, if if you work in the food industry and you don't know what she has written and spoken about back at a time, mostly before most of some of us have been, some of us were born, she was already talking about all this. I I didn't come up with any of this. I'm just repeating what I've learned from her. <laughs> and so, but here we are. We talk about you know, protein. And yes, those we need to look at things from those lenses, but start off with this clear statement that, and you said it, what are our values and what trade-offs are we willing to make? So given that as the lens through which we're viewing things, which is pretty broad, maybe you can tell us more about what are your values and what trade-offs do you factor in that led you to develop nowadays as the, the thing you're focused on right now? Yeah. I, that is such a good question. And I'm a, I'm a huge Donella Meadows fan. I have thinking in systems on my bookshelf. I was just looking <laughs> at it. Uh, and I think um, my values are, honestly, I'm a walking contradiction. Uh, I, my values change. Uh, the one thing that I know is that uh, I'm imperfect and I know nothing. And um that really I hold a bunch of values near and dear to my heart. And sometimes they're in conflict. Uh, one of the clearest examples is animal welfare and sustainability. According to, you know, across some metrics, there's a trade-off between treating animals better on these farming systems and sustainability metrics. I mean, confining animals into small spaces, uh, feeding them very quickly and cheaply, uh, and feeding them antibiotics prophylactically so that they grow really fat and killing them very young, like has some, there are some positive environmental benefits to those systems than if we gave animals their full lives to grow and consume and live uh, and lots of land. Uh, and so uh, no one ever talks about this uh, because I think the alternative protein folks are like, neither of those systems are good. We're not optimizing for either of them. But there's a whole community of people that are pushing for animal welfare reform on these farms. And there is a real, there are some real environmental trade-offs there. There are also some real environmental benefits. And so this is the other challenge. Like there's there's no answer to what is a sustainable solution to these systems. There are 
there's no such thing as a free lunch. So there are just a bunch of different metrics. And how do we measure these? How do we compare land use to water use to GHG emissions to biodiversity loss? Uh, uh, there is no answer. Uh, there are a bunch of different models. There are smarter people than me trying to think through how to evaluate those trade-offs. But um, but the long this is a, a circuitous um, way of saying I hold a bunch of values around human and planetary health and animal welfare. I think what I'm trying to do and what I hope we can all collectively do is create a future that is more healthy, humane, and sustainable. Now, the devil is in the details on what that actually means. <laughs> and um, and it's very hard to think through. But one of the things that I think is most helpful as a framework for thinking about these uh, value systems and these potential solutions is actually to just get much more clear on the problem we're trying to solve. I think that uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, we have solutions that go out and look for problems. Um, and then we have problems we're trying to solve for that actually aren't market-based problems. They're not problems that the market has. They're problems that maybe we have for ethical systems or um, religious reasons or um, personal beliefs. But I'm worried that, unfortunately, um, these are market. These are markets. We're talking about agricultural commodities. We're talking about supply chain issues. Um, we're not talking about my moral system. And so, if I put that aside, I do know that the way that we intensively rear the number of animals that we slaughter and eat every year for our gustatory pleasure is at the epicenter of a plethora of problems. I don't know how all those trade-offs net out, but I do know that if we can carve anything, any of those problems away from that system, that we're having a big impact. Then the question becomes, how do we scale more healthy, more humane, and more sustainable products? Um, and that's a much a much longer conversation. Maybe the an example, I think, that is a more helpful and clear um, way to think about this is I spent a lot of time thinking about and working on food waste. And I think food waste is actually a really good framework for us to understand um, what not to do in coming up with solutions to problems. I think food waste is a big waste of all of our time. And it's a great example to help us think about food systems. So people are really concerned about food waste. About 30% of global food is wasted, quote unquote. Um, it might be even more in the United States, somewhere like 40%. And everyone says, oh my God, waste. <laughs> what a problem. Uh, no one likes waste. Waste itself is a bad word. Um, and the challenge though is that waste is a problem, is many different, food waste has many different problems. The Pope, the Pope says that food waste is a problem because people are going hungry, right? And what a tragedy that people are starving on the one hand and then people are wasting food on the other. Um, the Natural Resources Defense Council says that food waste is a problem because food has a massive environmental impact on our planet. And how horrible it is to have that environmental impact and waste it. Like, gosh, we should just be using everything we produce. Um, uh, the problem, though, is solutions often to food waste don't necessarily go and feed hungry people. And they don't necessarily drive sustainability across our food system either. In many cases, the environmental impacts of a food product are sunken costs, whether we waste them or not. Um, perhaps we're wasting food because we're actually just eating too many calories. And whether I bought that plate of pasta and ate 90% of it or 100% of it, that 10% delta has no environmental benefit 
Those are sunken costs. Perhaps actually the best way to nourish people in the world and help solve the Pope's concerns um, have nothing to do with food waste. Um, in fact, maybe we have to waste more food to increase access for people who need food. Um, so once you start to actually try to identify what problem we're actually trying to solve for, then the solution set opens up and you say, oh my gosh, if we're really trying to drive sustainability, maybe solutions to food waste aren't actually the best solutions. They're maybe not the best levers to pull. Um, or hell, maybe we're not thinking about waste systematically. Are we worried about losing 30%, a 30% loss in this system? Well, chickens are the most efficient land animal that we farm. We feed nine calories on average of feed to a chicken to produce one calorie of feed in form of chicken meat. That is an 800% loss in that energy system. Um, maybe eating animals is food waste. Uh, where, wh at what level are we talking about? What problems are we trying to solve for? And if we start to actually think critically about asking those kinds of questions and getting very specific, then a landscape of solutions emerge that are real systemic solutions to these really, really complicated and thorny problems that do matter. Like driving sustainability across the system matters. Feeding people who are hungry matters. But if we're not taking the discourse down to a level of specificity and getting clear on the values, the trade-offs, the problem sets, then we're going to keep on coming up with really, really low-hanging fruit. Um, Google, Facebook, gosh, um, the federal government has a food waste. We're now co so concerned about food waste. And honestly, it's a big waste of our time and money. And that the, the, the interest, excitement, and capital that could go to actually solving the problems that these people care about likely have nothing to do with the solutions that are at hand today to solve the food waste problem. So if that's a lens that we can think about food waste, just like we think about protein, just like we think about energy systems, just like we think about um, anything across food, we need to be very clear on what we're trying to solve for, what level of specificity we're talking about. Is this an energy system? Is this a nutrient system? If we're trying to feed people, I can waste all the Doritos I want. Um, wasting cheap calories is not a bad thing. It's wasting nutrient-dense foods that's a bad thing. Um, so I would, I hope and I've been trying to get more and more people to slow down and actually have more nuanced conversations about these yeah. topics so that we can really drive solutions. I mean, I love I love everything you just outlined. The food waste example is, is perfect and is a great sort of starting point for someone to think more critically about issues in our food system and it just also tells you the 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 shocking lack of critical thinking that does happen in 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 most spaces uh, around these issues it almost sort of reminds me of um i guess it reminds me of something else i read about um uh, this is not from the food system but it is related um uh, he's a he's well known as a he was well known as a spiritual teacher jay krishnamurti um, now that I think of some of the stuff he said, it seems like he was just a critical thinker. <laughs> um, for example, I'll just give you the example I have in mind. Some, your food waste example made me think of it. When one of his, someone listening to one of his lectures asked him, should I eat eggs? And, and I'm totally paraphrasing, and I don't remember the details of his response, but his response was essentially, um, what what is the purpose of your question? Do you do you pay taxes? Are you a American citizen? Do you support your government? Do you support 
the do you call yourself an american and does the american government pay for wars in other countries that kill people what is it that you're actually against are you against violence is that your real question um you know answer those questions and then you'll know whether or not you should eat an egg uh, so what so so it just examine it further and i just love that way of looking at things because um the deeper you examine a question, you realize you, you're maybe even asking the wrong question to begin with. Uh, and what you're really driving at is something much, much, much more deeper. So this is the longest setup to uh, an introduction <laughs> about uh, a founder and uh, talking about his company. But I knew I wanted you on to talk about much more than just the current work you're doing. But I think we've, we've, we've built it up really well. What led you to finally decide that the next step you were going to take in, in, in the work that you were doing in food systems issues was going to be to go start a food company yourself? What drove that decision? And, and then if you can tell us a little bit more about nowadays and how you approach what you're doing and why it's different from what exists so far. Well, at first, Neil, I thought that, that starting a food company was not the solution. Uh, and I tested the hypothesis of instead consulting for big food companies around the world. And I thought, gosh, uh, I need to stop being the academic on the picket line outside yelling about <laughs> systems thinking and uh, interrogating first principles to really understand what problems we're solving for here and coming up with better solutions. Um, no one was listening to me. <laughs> and uh, I thought, gosh, let me stop picketing outside and let me just get inside the boardrooms. And let me figure out how to slightly shift direction, product portfolios, the way that these companies think. And so I got a job, moved out to California, started working at a hybrid think tank creative consultancy called the Institute for the Future, which is a spinoff of the Rand Corporation in the late 60s and a group of researchers, designers, strategists who take the sort of scenario planning and foresight methodologies that were developed at Rand and applied them to the business and social sectors. And so I got a job consulting across the global food value chain, seed companies, ingredient companies, food packaging companies, CPGs, foundations with a nutrition or ag focus, governments, industry groups, you name it. I spent almost five years um, traveling the world, working with everyone. And my, my work was long-term strategy and innovation projects, helping people think differently about the future of food, planning for the future. In fact, not just planning or thinking, but actually making the future. And I did that for long enough to realize a few things. One was that these big companies are not structurally designed to change. They have big capital investments in infrastructure that they need to keep on getting value out of. They are engaged in pretty complicated supply chains that are locked in. Um, Maybe at the highest of level, I guess, I just realized that inertia is a very powerful force. And while originally the idea of jumping onto the Titanic and moving in a few inches sounded great, I realized that a few inches was not sufficient to avoid the iceberg. So uh, I, after doing that for a few years, I uh, got enough experience and I've built a network of amazing people around the world doing interesting things in food. I realized that my imposter syndrome was never going to go away, uh, that I always thought that once you get into those rooms, that people actually knew what they were talking about. And the cliche, of course, is that no one does, uh, no one ever will. And we're all really fumbling around in the dark. 
So once I realized that, I decided that it was time to try to do something on my own, something that I thought could scale quickly and cheaply and have impact. And that is how Nowadays was born. Nowadays, as a company was founded by myself and my co-founder, Dominic Grabinski, we met in San Francisco. And he comes from uh, you know, a, a long career in big food. He spent decades working at Cargill and DSM. Uh, he's an ag- agricultural engineer by training, uh, built and, and sold a big dairy farm in Europe when he was younger, uh, author of five, soon to be six patents, uh, one of which is ours. And, um, and Dominic and I met, and he spent his career making food products that he wasn't eating or putting on his kids' plates for dinner and didn't feel great about that. Turns out actually, interestingly enough, a lot of the folks that we've brought onto the team, a lot of the people who are industry execs who we've convinced to join us um, have been people who have spent their lives optimizing systems for values that they don't hold. And it's been an amazing experience to talk to these folks who are a lot older than I am, who have a lot more experience in this industry than I do, and who don't necessarily feel great about what they've spent their careers building. And what a compelling pitch that you get to finally optimize the system for your values, that you get to finally spend day in and day out building something that you think can actually have a positive impact. Um, it turns out that that's a really compelling value proposition to folks. So we stepped back, Dominic and I, and said, how do we actually do something that's different? And how do we actually build something that can go beyond, gosh, alternative meats in the United States today are about 2% of the overall meat market. You know, that's a rounding error. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nothing. Uh, despite media coverage, despite venture capital interest, over 50% of food tech venture money last year went to alternative protein products, 50%. Uh, and yet, in terms of mass market adoption, we are far, far, far away. In terms of true impact at scale, we have a long ways to go. And we started nowadays to try to overcome that. And the, there are major three major uh, sort of pillars to the business that we believe um, as we build them, we'll be able to really enable us to reach mass market adoption and really have impact. And those three are, we need products that taste good. Food companies need to build a product portfolio that delivers a joyous eating experience for consumers at the end of the day. Um, that's table stakes, though, for food company. That should always be number one. Uh, it's necessary, but not sufficient for uh, anything. The other two are One, we need these products to deliver a clear health value proposition to consumers. The number of vegans and vegetarians has not changed um, much at all over the past uh, 50 years. However, the growing flexitarian segment uh, is arguably the largest diet today, uh, in the United States at least. And whether people define themselves as it or not, their, be, their behavior patterns are suggesting that a growing percentage of the market is occasionally choosing an alternative meat product or looking to reduce their consumption of animal-based products. And when asked over and over again what their primary motivating factor is, they continue to tell us that it's health. And this shouldn't be a surprise for us because we're in broader public health crises. We're dealing with a double burden of nutrition. Um, we're dealing with, gosh, pandemics. Uh, that are arguably uh, a direct result of our food system and more. So 
consumers need healthier options, but there's a massive disconnect between that latent demand in the market and products on shelves today, which are, um, quite frankly, for lack of a better term, fake meat. Um, they are ultra-processed foods with laundry lists of ingredients, poor nutritionals, added sugar, sodium bombs. I mean, it's it's uh, we've really thrown the plant-based baby out with the bathwater in terms of product development. Uh, what what we originally made as black bean and quinoa burgers that were made from you know whole foods and had great nutritionals took on the form factor of animal products, but weren't weren't exactly um, mimicking mimicking the organoleptics. We've swung the pendulum too far the other way. Now we've lost all of the semblance and the, the benefits of using plants to make food, and um, instead are delivering on those organoleptics. Uh, I think that the future of this category is somewhere in the middle. We get the benefits of the eating experience that consumers expect from these animal-based categories, but we get the health benefits that consumers are looking for from plant-based. Uh, that the earlier products adopted. So we need to make a brand that has a product portfolio that actually does work for consumers in the market. It sounds obvious uh, and almost almost trite to say, but every time I see a new product on the market, I ask myself, who is the target consumer? What is the pain point that they experience from the animal-based category that you are uniquely solving with this product? And then the third question I ask is the third leg of our stool. How much more expensive is this product? Uh, these products are too damn costly. They're too costly to manufacture. And you can have the most delicious product and deliver a health value proposition like and solve a pain point in the market. But if you're three, four, five X other channel players, you are all dressed up and you got nowhere to go. So we need to make plant-based meats that are delicious, nutritious, and affordable. And if we can compete on cost with commodity prices of animal of animals, and do so in a way that is uh, with a very clear and differentiated health value proposition and delicious. I think we can really create a brand and a product portfolio that breaks into the mainstream. I think you raise a lot of uh, really important points. The biggest one is that um, we all know the data points to the fact that most consumers who choose plant-based do it for health reasons. Uh, they believe the product is healthier because it says the word plant-based on its packaging, and which is what, what ex probably explains, I'm speculating, but my guess is it probably explains why plant-based is starting to be slapped on literally everything now, even if it's not food, um, because it sells. Uh, my water is plant-based. <laughs> um, and we, we, uh, we've some, somehow, I think what's interesting here though, is that, and I totally agree with the, with the, with your hypothesis, I, I'm not going to disagree with that one. Uh, I think your three pillars make perfect sense. Of course, the devil's in the details in terms of how you achieve this. Um, and, and the first one is usually the, the biggest barrier. But also at a time when, which is taste, right? Which is today most consumers um, who choose plant-based, and again, I'm, most of this is anecdotal. I can't tell you I've done any hard research myself, but I can tell you from my experiences and what I've observed and seen, whether it's through some of the work I'm doing or uh, some of it's reflected in the data, is that we've got we've got certain categories of plant-based meats with a lot of uh, very similar products, similar ingredient labels. Um, some of the packaging also sort of looks the same. Um, the claims are pretty much the same. And um, 
from a perspective of a flexitarian consumer who I believe all of them claim to be targeting, uh, they it, it is really hard for a consumer. And this is what I've heard from, from friends and, and folks I've talked to who have dabbled in plant-based meats. And they've said they've used that word because they've tried it and never gone back. They maybe gone and tried another brand and been disappointed. And it doesn't just apply to meats. It applies to other products and other categories of plant-based food. And they've just somehow, at least the ones I've spoken to say, it does, they don't stick with any uh, product. Or if they find one that works for them, they go back. But, they, but they're now starting to get concerned about whether it is truly healthier than meat. Maybe they should start looking at the grass-fed meat as an option, of course, if they can afford it and it's available where they live. Uh, so I do think that the challenge that, that the industry faces, we, we I think we know that, it comes down to how do you replicate meat? How do you deliver on the taste, texture, that whole sensory experience that one has eating meat um, without having to make some trade-offs in the process. And I'm assuming your product is not free of trade-offs. There are some trade-offs being made. Um, and then even if you make some of the trade-offs, I guess it's a two-part question. One is like, how do you achieve that goal, firstly? Because I've in the past, when some of the brands have been criticized, they say, well, you can't have meat without fat. So you need oil because you need fat. Without fat, it, would, it wouldn't be meat. Um, and some companies are exploring ideas on perhaps incorporating cultivated or cultured fat into plant-based meats to make it even more meat-like because uh, what they think is the gap is consumers just don't think it's meaty enough. Um, we don't know if that's truly what consumers think, but I think we're, we're speculating there. So even if you do, you get it right, somehow you're able to recreate meat and everything a flexitarian consumer who does eat meat gets out of your product, um, how do you stand out in this crowded category? Uh, and especially when there's such a limited set of distribution points um, for your packaging, your brand, you know, and this is where it comes into the complexity of the structure of the food industry, not the food system in general, just the way the industry works. Like you can be, so So, just to be clear on the two parts, one is even if you get it all right on health, um, assuming you can, that's the first part. The second part is how do you stand out? And then um, how do you solve for the limitations in the industry itself? Like you may be the most brilliant food scientist that has figured this out. Next thing you're doing, you're working with distributors, redistributors, brokers, buyers from different retail stores, and they've all got their own, and I'm sure you're starting to deal with, or have been dealing with all of this. Uh, and then you realize what makes products sell may not be none of the genius of the product itself and more genius of sales, right? So hate to sound skeptical, but I'm bringing in my business knowledge from the food industry and now kind of finding a way to fuse it with all the system stuff we've been talking about and the very real problem you're trying to solve it nowadays. So I, I, I try to divide it into parts, but I, I think you understand the gist of my questions. <laughs> yes, I got it. And it's a very, very good one. And we'll take a little bit of time to unpack. I think, I think, First, 
we start with opportunity. So one thing that is abundantly clear to me is that there's massive opportunity for the plant-based category. People are questioning that right now because maybe of you know how Beyond Meat stock is performing and their their revenue. And you know, I think it's still very early days for this category. And it's still very early days for differentiated brands on the market that are cost competitive, that do work for consumers. And that's going to take some more time. Um, but your earlier comment about plant-based being slapped on everything and my joke about it being even being slapped on water, like it's even at Expo West this year, I mean, it was it's plant-based is starting to become a vacuous term. It's starting to lose its meaning because it literally is being slapped on everything. And that's because we know that there's a market demand. Right. This is a this is an a symbol to me. It's an indicator that um, this is a good thing. We just need to hold up the promise, and we can't let the word become meaningless. But I think that the early indicators show that there is a massive opportunity to create products that are plant based that actually do scale. And so, on the other side of that coin, is massive opportunity means massive. Uh, land grab for that opportunity. And what you're seeing today is a lot of brands moving very quickly, looking at corners as though they're cuttable and trying to get products out into the market that are the same exact products that have been on the market for a long time, that are the same exact products that are on the market today. Um, These are undifferentiated products with undifferentiated brands undifferentiated value propositions to consumers. And quite frankly, I think products that aren't doing enough work for consumers to drive repeat purchase and really embed those brands and products into their hearts and minds. Uh, Maybe you try some novelty purchase. uh, It doesn't do enough for you. Maybe you try another brand, but unfortunately it's the same kind of product anyway. um, I buy all of these products. I taste them all. Often when I get them, I cover up the logo and the name and I read the copy and I'm like, this could be any plant-based meat company. This could be any alternative protein company. This is the most undifferentiated positioning that you could imagine. So, um, so working backwards, I think, you know, the way to solve this problem is to truly make a differentiated brand, to truly make a differentiated product and to truly come up with a value proposition to consumers that is unique and solves the pain points that they are experiencing with the meat category um, or aligns with their aspirations around eating a healthier diet or being more proud of what they're putting on their kids' plates for dinner. So if you can create a differentiated value proposition with a unique brand and you can compete on cost, um, it's only you unlock a lot of opportunity. It's only a challenge to compete on shelf with exactly the same product by five other brands. Um, When you go in and pitch buyers at retailers or you're talking to food service operators and you can undercut other channel players in cost, or you can tell a retail buyer, oh, great, you carry these five plant-based chicken products. Great. All five of them are soy-based. All five of them have over 10 grams of fat. All five of them have over 500 milligrams of sodium. Um, here are our unique differentiators across that competitive set. Kick off your low, kick out your low-performing one, and give us a chance. Um, we'll actually provide a, a, a different opportunity for your customers to try something new. Um, so I think 
the way to solve those like annoying, thorny problems with distribution and getting on shelf and um, just the business of running a food company, I think it just goes back to business basics. You need to make something that's unique and you need to defend your ability to make that that's unique and you need to make it affordable for folks. So once you do that, I'm not too rosy eyed. I know that there are still significant challenges, but it's a different equation and problem than I think what a lot of others in the space are dealing with. Um, and then your first point is really good. How do you make plant-based meat uh, solve the problems and deliver the experience that consumers are looking for? And you're, you're absolutely right. Um, one of the big challenges is that there are trade-offs. And uh, these, um, you know, there are trade-offs across the board. There are massive externalities of animal-based products. Uh, they're just not as immediate trade-offs to consumers. That's the, tra- that's the biggest problem with this system. Consumers don't realize the true trade-offs they're making when they buy animal-based products. Um, they're hidden. They're long-term. They're uh, more uh, societal than individual. Um, and they're still individual, but they're harder to see. And, um, and quite frankly, the industries have done an amazing job at pulling wool over our eyes. Uh, and quite frankly, even this is true of cost. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me when you see seven plant managers from Tyson getting fired because they're all betting on email chains about how many of their workers are going to get COVID. Um, it's amazing to me that Pilgrim's Pride executives are under federal investigation right now for price fixing um, because these are not competitive markets. These are manipulated markets. It's amazing to me that it's hard for us as eaters to understand those kinds of externalities um, and those the, the kinds of ways in which um, the kinds of trade-offs we're making. So, um, so this is a long-winded way of saying uh, there are trade-offs. We need to figure out what trade-offs are meaningful to people and which ones aren't. And uh, we also need to understand what the counterfactuals are, like what the bar really is. Um, there is no such thing as a free lunch. There is no such thing as, um, you know, healthy food in an unhealthy category. Like you're going to make trade-offs if you're trying to enter that category. So fat is a, is honest. I, I love that you said that because that's the perfect example. Um, animal meat has fat. And if you want to make a product that tastes like that, there's some things you can do, but you need to have fat. And so either we just need to accept that that's a trade-off regardless and that's not something we optimize for and we figure out some other uh, elements or variables that we want to improve upon. And or in parallel, we come up with alternative fats. We come up with fats that are perhaps better. We, we use fats that aren't saturated. We, you know, there are other sort of levers to pull. But this is a much more nuanced conversation. And quite frankly, to the end consumer, our strategy is a bit different. We just try to communicate very simple health and sort of wellness and like whole, wholesome natural heuristics, uh, which is much more of a marketing strategy than anything. But uh, it turns out that when we say that we have seven ingredients in our product, that heuristic is really helpful. Uh, that alone it goes a long way. When we say that our protein comes from yellow peas, consumers know what peas are. They're familiar with them. That really lowers the, the barrier um, uh, to feeling comfortable with trying a new product in a, an emerging category. So we look for things like familiarity. We look for um, also natural shapes and sizes. This sounds silly, but 
Unfortunately, I think a lot of alternative protein products are cookie cutter. They have square edges. They look so artificial that they reinforce the idea that this is fake meat. We don't, I really, really feel like we need to move beyond this narrative that we're making fake meat. We're making a healthier alternative to meat that is its is a wholesome and good food in its own right. And part of the way that we do that is we make are cuts of meat in various shapes and sizes that have a more natural look. And that more natural look goes a long way for consumers to feel comfortable with the product, as opposed to these molds and forms that are very uh, uniform and standardized. And I think most people aren't looking for when they're looking for animal products. I appreciate you, you, Capturing the the breadth of my convoluted question <laughs> or multi part questions, I need to stop asking multi part questions. I tend to do that a lot. It's they're only fun, they're I, fun. I have too many thoughts running in my brain. Um, but you touched on all all of them, which I, I appreciate. Um, I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, the products because I, I know you launched initially with a with a plant based chicken nugget, uh, and that's your as far as I know, the only product in the market at the moment. Uh, I'm I, I'm guessing you picked the category because it's, it's yeah, why don't you tell me why you picked the category? I, I won't guess. <laughs> yes. Well, first, I think it's important to say we are not a, another plant-based chicken company and uh, certainly not a plant-based nugget company. We've really tried to figure out and have focused most of our one in, God, we've been around for a year and nine months now, uh, on building a platform for creating different whole cuts of clean label plant-based meat. And the, the product strategy is to target categories that have on both sides of the plant and animal-based aisles, laundry lists of ingredients and pretty poor nutritionals. And what better category than a nugget? Nuggets are products that are eaten despite what they are, not because of what they are. No parent feels good about putting a nugget on their kid's plate for dinner. It's a cheat night. It's a convenience food. It's easy. It's fast. It's beloved. Um, it's a seven or $8 billion market uh, across channels in the United States. It's huge. Uh, it's captured the consumer zeitgeist. I mean, there's nugget tick, there's chicken nugget TikTok. There's um, in ways that we, you know, we're obsessed with. I mean, we invented the nugget. So um, uh, we want, we wanted to start with a category that we could make the statement that we have, and we have this, our nugget that we've launched has the simplest and cleanest ingredient list and the best nutritional profile of any nugget on the market, plant or animal-based. Um, and so we, we're targeting categories that are breaded and fried. We're targeting categories that um, have poor nutritionals, and the nugget is an exemplary category for us. Um, by no means is it the only one. We are... Um, bringing in our manufacturing technology uh, in-house right now. And we are scaling commercialization of a diversity of products, primarily in the beginning focused on chicken. The product that we're most excited about that we're working very hard on commercializing is a full cut um, chicken cutlet. It's a big piece of, uh, for consumers, it will be breaded and par fried. And it's the best expression of our technology because we make whole cuts of meat and it enables us to, I think, more robustly enter channels like food service with um, that product because food service operators are really looking for, like a bread and fried chicken sandwich is one of the fastest growing food service menu items this past year. And so we're looking at this confluence of where there's 
market growth and consumer demand, where there are categories that we can make a clear and differentiated health value proposition, and that our technology, which makes low-cost, clean-label, whole cuts of plant-based meat, where that nexus is, is our is represents what our product innovation pipeline uh, includes. You know, you're obviously applying a lot of your learnings from your previous experience as you approach this uh, very direct solutions-based, business-based uh, approach to a food system problem, or at least one amongst several problems in the food system. Yeah, what's your experience been so far? And and I guess I have to ask this question: What is now? Why nowadays? What's maybe? Let's start there. Why why call it nowadays? What's the meaning behind the name? And and what's the story so far? Uh, and for those listening that are intrigued by what you're saying, would love to try the products. Maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, where it can be purchased. I thought that you were going to stop asking multi-part questions. <laughs> Thank you for calling me out on that. <laughs> uh, no, I love it. So we're, we are available direct to consumer at eatnowadays.com. We want more people to eat nowadays. So that's our social handle for all of our social media accounts at eat nowadays. And uh, we are scaling right now into retail. So we pitched one retailer this past year for their category reviews. We pitched, we went big. We pitched the marquee national and organic retailer, we pitched Whole Foods, and they're launching uh, our original nuggets across Northern California and Southern Pacific in uh, the summer. And we are scaling up our food service strategy. We're in restaurants in New York and LA, if you live in those uh, markets, and uh, are pushing full steam ahead to really be an omnichannel brand with distribution in uh, direct consumer retail and food service. You can find us all over the place, uh, soon to be more and more. Uh, but the nowadays question I love, um, and you know, it took a lot of late night whiteboarding and a lot of really bad names uh, to get to where we landed. And the rationale behind the name is that uh, nowadays we really want to build a brand that speaks to the mainstream. We want to build a brand that doesn't engage in identity politics, that doesn't blame or shame eaters and that doesn't throw stones at animal-based products. And that's because uh, Marketing 101, our target customer, a lot of brands say their target customer is a flexitarian, but if your flexitarian eats meat, it's tough to imagine that they also want to go beyond meat. Uh, certainly their fridges don't suggest that uh, or their grocery carts. So if you are trying to speak to someone who currently eats animal products, uh, I worry that a lot of the positioning and the branding and, and the brand names uh, kind of go against that grain. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a brand that was a vision of the future. Nowadays has an ever presentism to it. It's this, it's nowadays will always be about now in the present today, tomorrow in five years and 10 years. But nowadays in my mind, is a word that acknowledges that today in the present, there's something different. Nowadays, plant-based meat can be as good for you as it is for the planet. Uh, nowadays, we can uh, have our meat and eat it too. And there's, a, there's an acknowledgement of something different, but it's non, most importantly, it's non-judgmental. Uh, when, when my parents or my grandparents used to say, well, nowadays we, we don't do that, we do something different. 
it's a very folksy uh, and very approachable just acknowledgement um, without judgment. And that was very, very important to us. And then, and then the last thing was um, there's a lot of like hubris, I think, and a lot of like male ego and, and a lot of, uh, uh, gosh, when you look at a lot of these names, they're, they're, um, they're just not something that I personally identify with. And they're not a vision of a future that I, that I want. Um, and they're not a reflection of a value system or, or like, yeah, a place that I, I can see myself. So nowadays to me has like, is emotionally laden in a way that um, describes this non-judgmental future that that's different, that's better. Uh, and that's really approachable for the mainstream. How is it going? Uh, it depends on what day it is. I answer that question differently. I think right now I'm feeling very good. We are um, being an entrepreneur, as you know, is a really, 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 really hard job. I feel like we're always doing too much and we're never doing enough. And that's really, really hard for me. That said, we've been around for less than two years and the team we've built, the technology that we've established and protected, the product that we have on market and the reception that that product's gotten, the investors we've brought on board, the partnerships across the value chain, the awards we've won, like I'm amazed and humbled and grateful for the immense amount of people uh, who are working every day to build this into something that can have impact. And it's incredibly, the, the most rewarding thing, Neil, my favorite part of my job and the most amazing thing about direct-to-consumer businesses is that I get emails from customers every day and there's nothing. We're still at a small scale. We're still super early stage. We're still especially compared to other folks in this space who have been around for three, two, three, four times as long with, you know, we've just closed a seed round. We've in total raised a little shy of, of $10 million as a company. We're on, we're, we're next to brands that have raised a hundred million dollars, $200 million. Uh, and I'm amazed at the response that we get from customers saying, I eat these other products and I just found out about nowadays, I just got your product and here's how it's changed my life. Like literally we get, I got an email a few months ago from a teacher who told me that during the, the pandemic has been really hard for him and his mental health, that he of course stopped going to his work. He stopped teaching in person. He fell into a pretty big depressive slump. He stopped exercising and he stopped eating well. And Somehow the algorithms on Facebook found him and pitched him on our product. And on a whim, he bought a box of nuggets. And I kid you not, he emailed me and he said, your nuggets have changed my life. I started eating your nuggets. It sounds crazy to me um, and, and somewhat silly to say, but I've, he wrote this eloquent email saying, like, I started eating them and realized I can eat better. Um, without making a lot of sacrifice and I can start exercising more. And um, there's this opportunity for me, just like a little gateway to start living a different life that I wanted to live. And he said, your brand helped me do that. Uh, and that like, forget about anything else that we do. Like forget about anything this year, forget about our revenue, forget about product commercialization, partnerships, blah, 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 distribution. Like hearing from someone that, there they that we played a small role in helping them 
get out of a depressive state during a pandemic when their life was turned upside down. Uh, I don't know how you could be a founder and not say that things are going amazingly well when you get emails like that. Yeah, I wish we could spend more time talking to people who actually enjoy the products, right? Because <laughs> uh, then it would make everything a lot more worth it uh, any given day. I must say, I, I do love the name. I think the point that you mentioned about uh, positioning and marketing were were really good. And I think it's important for people to not gloss over those because especially if you're targeting products to flexitarians, I've never truly understood the, and I think it's just, maybe it's a logical conclusion of what has been happening in the, in this industry over the last few years that we've maybe reached a point where we recognize if you want to uh, welcome people in to try your products, it, it maybe for some people it can start with shaming, but that's not going to appeal to the widest group of people. And and I've seen it play out uh, in 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 some of the work I'm doing. It's that it just if your if your product is good and what you're offering is great, talk about that, and and that's what makes it exciting for people to try it. Um, and I think that's also I think we're in a stage of evolution in this industry, and I think nowadays is a good example of. What perhaps is coming in as the new wave of, of what's possible with plant-based meats. Um, you know, the other alternative is go back to making tempeh, the simplest <laughs> plant-based meat, and maybe maybe uh, flexitarians will embrace it finally and maybe call it something else. So, anyway, um, Max, this has been this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm going to close out with one last question. I promise, this is just a simple one. No multi-part questions anymore. <laughs> if you get it right with nowadays, what do you think the food system will look like in 2050? Yeah. When we succeed, I hope nowadays as a company is creating a diversity of nutritious, delicious, affordable meats, not just for people in the United States, but around the world not just for wealthy vegans on the coasts, but for everyday eaters uh, in every market. And I hope nowadays helps people, uh, other, other brands, other uh, food service operators, other folks understand that meat can come from a different place, that meat can use a lot less land, uh, require um, a lot less water, really emit fewer GHGs and um, be delicious uh, and nutritious. I think that's, that's the long-term goal. What that means for broader food systems, gosh, uh, your bet is as good as mine. I, I do believe that there's no such thing as a silver bullet. I do believe that we need a million. There, there's massive opportunity for many winners in the market, and we need a lot of these uh, products to come online. And I hope that nowadays is one of many differentiated alternatives, um, not just in meat. We see this in soda. We see this in snacks. We see this uh, across categories. There's a movement towards taking what people love and the nostalgia and the, de uh, the indulgence of many of these categories and reformulating them, flipping them on their, on their heads to create something that's better for people on the planet. And I hope that in 2050, the food system is, is owned and operated by a lot more brands that are making products that are good for people on the planet than there are on the shelf today. Max Elder, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I enjoyed every minute of this conversation. This has been a great, great experience for me. 
Neil, thank you so much for having me. I love the questions. I love the multi-part questions <laughs> as well. So keep them coming. Um, thanks so much for all the work that you do. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.